Father, you are great. And Lord, I'm reminded about your words in Acts 1-8, where you tell us that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the world. Father, help us to be witnesses. Lord, show us the power that's in us through your Holy Spirit. Father, open up our hearts that we may use our time, our talents, our touches, and our treasures for your kingdom. Lord, whether it means giving or going, whatever doors open up for us, Lord, please put a spirit within our church and continue to grow that spirit within us that we desire to go make an impact for your kingdom. Lord, thank you for giving us that opportunity. Lord, we know you're doing a wonderful work. We know you choose your children to be your hands and your feet. So even right here in Hilton Head, Lord, help us to be your hands and your feet. In Haiti, in Africa, in Japan, in China, in South America, in Europe. Lord, give us a heart for the lost. And give us a heart even more so for you to love the things that you love, to hate the things that you hate, and to have your spirit allow us to use our mouths to be a witness for you. Lord, thank you for this time to worship you. As we get ready to hear your word proclaimed, Lord, may it change our hearts. Lord, we know your word does not come back void, but it accomplishes the task which set, you set before it. So, Lord, we eagerly and with great anticipation await that today. And we praise in your precious name. Amen. We have with us Sammy Rhodes, who spoke last week and blessed our hearts. He's the RUF campus minister at the University of South Carolina, and we're going to turn it over to him now. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you guys for letting me back, uh, inviting me back this week. Um, I mentioned last week I'm, introductions aren't my strong suit. Um, so what I'd like to do is go ahead and look at the passage we're going to look at together this morning from John 11. It's in your bulletin, or if you brought a Bible, you can turn there. And what I want to think about with you this morning in particular is thinking about the way um, that no one in your life loves you as well as Jesus loves you. And that's really what I want to look at from John 11, is thinking about how well Jesus uh, loves us, and looking in particular what that means for us. So um, that being said, let me read from John 11, starting at, we're going to read verses 1 to 7, and then skip and read 30 to 44, um, just for the sake of time. So first, John 11, uh, verses 1 to 7, then 30 to 44, and I'll read it for us. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her, her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he 
heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And skip to verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray one more time, and then I want to dive in to this passage today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it shapes and molds us. We thank you for the way it brings about uh, conviction, and it brings about uh, comfort. And Lord, I pray that all of these things would happen uh, as we look at it, and as we look, Lord Jesus, at this story from your life, and this um, thing in, in space and time in our world that you did, and the way that you loved your friends. We pray that you would bless us as we look at your word this morning, we pray, Lord Christ, in your name, amen. So I mentioned last week that I've been uh, married almost 10 years. Uh, this December is going to be my, uh, our 10-year uh, anniversary, and I'm already trying to plan something that'll be a little special, something a little uh, out of the ordinary. But I want to tell you about the time six years ago that I got a girlfriend, this girlfriend was amazing. This girlfriend was beautiful. This girlfriend always only ever did what I asked her to do, and her name was iPhone. Uh, my wife literally calls my iPhone uh, my mistress because uh, so much of my time is spent just staring, <laughs> staring lovingly at her, uh, constantly glued to everything that my iPhone can do from Facebook to Twitter to email to just Kindle to all the, the, the beautiful things that um, an iPhone can do. If you don't have an iPhone, we'll say a quick, we're, ho- we're holding a prayer service for you <laughs> afterwards, um, kidding. Um, but it's interesting, as I was thinking about my obsession with my phone and technology, a lot of you can relate, whether it's an iPhone or whether it's a, some other kind of um, technological product. But I read this article that I think nailed this idea of how actually sometimes there is this pull this pull away from real life and real love and real relationships, and this pull toward uh, the unreal, this pull toward escaping reality. 
And it's by this, my, one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Franzen. One of my friends pointed this article out to me, but it's called Technology Provides an Alternative to Love. Liking is for cowards. Go for what hurts. And as I read this that I'm going to read to you, it just really nailed me. And here's what he says. He says this. He says, I may be overstating the case a little bit. Very probably you're sick to death of hearing social media disrespected by cranky 51-year-olds. My aim here is mainly to set up a contrast between the narcissistic tendencies of technology and the problem of actual love. My friend Alice Siebold likes to talk about getting down in the pit and loving somebody. And she has in mind the dirt that love inevitably splatters on the mirror of our self-regard. The simple fact of the matter is that trying to be perfectly likable is incompatible with loving relationships. And listen to what he says. Sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in a hideous, screaming fight, and you'll hear coming out of your mouth things that you yourself don't like at all, things that shatter your self-image as a fair, kind, cool, attractive, in-control, funny, likable person. Something realer than likability has come out in you, and suddenly you're having an actual life. Suddenly there's a real choice to be made, not a fake consumer choice between a Blackberry and an iPhone, but a question. Do I love this person? And for the other person, does this person love me? And what I love about John 11 is it's this beautiful place where it shows us, it shows us Jesus getting down in the pit and loving his friends. And as we look at this passage together, there are really three things I want to ask us this morning and think about together. And it's three simple things. First is why he waits. Second, why he weeps. And then thirdly, why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. Why he waits, why he weeps, and why he wakes Lazarus from the dead. So first, think about me for this first point, why he waits. So it's interesting, what you have to understand is that Lazarus and Martha and Mary are Jesus's real friends. They're not just Facebook friends. He like really, really loves them. He cares about them. He's eaten Martha's home-cooked food. Mary has been at his feet and probably massaged them. He's probably slept when he stayed in Bethany. He's probably slept in Lazarus's bed. He is close to them, and he loves them dearly. So it's interesting, and you probably noticed this as I read in verse 6. What's fascinating, it says, he loved them, therefore he waited two days longer. Did you catch that? Like, if you and I were thinking about this, so these are some of his best friends, and he heard that Lazarus was dying, you and I would think he loved them, so therefore he got on his donkey as fast as he could, he got his disciples as fast as he could, and he's, he made it to Bethany as fast as he possibly could. But that's not what it says. It says he loved them, therefore he waited. Why? Why did he wait? Why did he wait two days to go see them? Because he loved them. Let's work this out a little bit. There was a, a, um, an article that came out uh, a couple of years ago by this blogger that I like a lot. His name is John Acuff. And the article was called Great Sex, Flat Abs, and Jesus. And he was talking about this tension that we have as he was in this Walmart. And if you've ever been in a Walmart, you know that the, one of the inter- interesting things that happens is uh, the book section and he was standing in the book section, and on the right hand were all these men's magazines, and on the left side were all these Christian inspirational books. And he did this blog, and it was called, basically, can you tell from the front, he took lines from the front cover 
of uh, these men's magazines, and he took lines from the back cover of Christian books, and he just put them on his blog and said, can you tell which one? Is it, was this from a men's magazine, or was this from the back cover of a, an inspirational Christian book? And here were two examples. Uh, example number two was The Secret to Effortless Success, men's magazine or back cover of a Christian book. And example number 11 was uh, Living Life Without Limits, uh, front cover of a men's magazine or the back cover of uh, a Christian book. And it was fascinating to sort of see what was what, and the quiz was, can you tell the difference? But then he does this, though. Because I think, if you're like me, you think, well, I don't struggle with the health and wealth gospel. But here's what he said. He said this. He said, do I ever go to God with a laundry list of better demands? Give me a better marriage, a better ministry, a better life, a better job, a better everything. Do I chase the blessings of God sometimes more than his presence? Do I ever treat God like a really good self-help guru that is there to meet my needs? And he says, yes, yes I do. And listen to what he says. He says, but I don't want God to simply be a new vehicle for the things I want. I want God, I want God to be what I want. I want him to be enough. I'll never forget a phone call my third year, I think, doing REF. I did REF for five years at Georgia Southern. And uh, there was this one particularly discouraging night where we had had our large group. And I think, like, and, you know, it was one of those nights where we normally had, you know, a certain amount of students. But this night we had a crushingly low amount of students, mainly because there was an Owl City John Mayer concert in Atlanta. <laughs> Uh, which was just, you know, took a ton of my students to Atlanta. And so I'd had this really low turnout. I was disappointed. So I called my fellow campus minister friend, and I was just kind of crying on the phone to him about how discouraged I was. And, I, and he had had a similar low turnout that night. And I'll never forget him saying, Sammy, Jesus loves me too much to give me a big large group right now. Jesus loves me too much to give me a big ministry. And I, I, I hated him because that's what I wanted. But what I wanted wasn't Jesus. And what I want you to see is, why does he wait? Because Jesus loves you and I enough to disappoint us. Jesus loves you enough to disappoint you, because he knows that, he knows that it's not loving you to let you want anything more than him. Another way of saying it is, Jesus makes you wait and if we never learn to wait, if we're never disappointed, we'll never learn to wait on him. We'll never learn for him to be enough, for him to be our hope. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in loving his friends. And so the question for you and for me this morning is simply this. Is where does Jesus need to disappoint you? Where does Jesus need to disappoint you in your own life? So first, why he waits, but then second, that's not all he does. Think with me for a second about why he weeps. So it's interesting if you saw the story that Jesus finally shows up and he's late to the funeral and Lazarus is already dead at this point and the funeral is almost over. So what is he going to say? You know, if you've ever been to a funeral, and I imagine most of you have, one of the most awkward things you can think about is, what, what do I say? Anything I say seems trite or cliche. What, or what are we going to, like, what possibly can I say to make the situation better? And so what is Jesus going to do? What is he going to say? And what's interesting is 
he doesn't really, on the one hand, he comforts Martha with truth. We don't have time to get into it. But on the other hand, he doesn't say anything at all to Mary. He simply has tears. One of my uh, fraternity brothers this past year, he suddenly lost his father. And I went to the, the, um, to the viewing. And I'll never forget waiting in line and just kind of making my way. And I hadn't seen this friend probably in two or three years. What was I going to, I was thinking the whole time, what am I going to say to him? And as I made my way around the room and I finally got to him, he just looked at me and he hugged me and he just burst into tears and cried for what felt like minutes. And we just kind of uh, held each other there and he cried. And what I want you to see is that's very much what Jesus does here. To say that Jesus wept kind of misses it for us a little bit. It'd be better to say that Jesus, when he saw the sadness of the scene with Mary, that he burst into tears. Why? Why was Jesus crying? Well, and I think there are actually three things that moved Jesus to tears, that moved him to burst into tears. Three things, I think, that are, that are at play here. And first, I want you to see what it's not. The first thing you have to see is it's not sentimental tears. It's not like, um, it's not like Jesus has been listening to Bon Iver and just starts crying. It's not tears of sentimentality. It's, it's, it's real tears. But it's also not regretful tears. It's not like the end of Schindler's List when, you, when, Sch- when he's looking around and says, this could have been five more lives and this could have been. It's not tears of regret because Jesus knows he, can do, he could and will do something. So it's not sentimental tears. It's not regretful tears. Well, what kind of tears are there? Well, I think there are three things you have to see. First, they're angry tears, tears of anger. What's interesting is Jesus is crying because he hates death. Literally, the word in the Greek is, is a really interesting word that's used both in verse 38 and verse 33, where it's really that word in Greek culture was often used of these wild animals, like horses, that they would make this sort of angry, you know, unbridled sound, and it would come out of them. And that's the word it uses about Jesus when it says he was moved to tears. Why was he moved? Because he hates death. Jesus hates death. Death, unlike what the Lion King told us, is not a part of the circle of life. Death is unnatural. Death is a part of the fall, and Jesus hates it, and he's come to undo it. He's come to take away death, right? So he's crying angry tears, but second, he's also crying tears of compassion. They're compassionate tears. It's not just that he's crying at death, but he's also crying at his friend's death. Not just a friend, but one of his best friend's death. He loved Lazarus. And, and, and he's filled with compassion for his friend and what his friend has just gone through. This is one of the things that I, that I think we miss sometimes is that Jesus actually looks at you with eyes of compassion. You know, one time I had a, a friend ask me this question, and she simply said this, and it undid me. She said, Sammy, I think you believe that Jesus loves you, but do you also believe that Jesus likes you? That, that his love is not this mere toleration of you, but that he actually considers you one of his best friends. That is the gospel for you and me. When it says that Jesus is the friend of sinners, it means he more than tolerates you and his love, but he actually likes you. And he actually has incredible compassion for you. And he, when he looks at you, he has deep, deep affection for you. And so these tears are tears of compassion, But it's more than that. It's not just at death that he's crying. It's not just at his friend's death that he's crying. But what's really fascinating about this passage is that if you look at the the parallels between what Lazarus is going through and what Jesus knows he is about to undergo, 
for the sake of his friends, that Jesus has actually moved to tears because of his own death. It's interesting, we didn't have time to look at it, but if we were to go deeper into the passage in verse 50, Caiaphas, you remember what the high priest says? It says that he literally, they are thinking about what do we do with Jesus? And you, this, this is obviously one of the, the greatest miracles in his life to this point, where we're going to look at it in a minute, where he raises a, a dead man to life. But they're thinking, what are we going to do with Jesus? And it's not by accident in verse 50 that they say it is better that one man should die for the people. They're sacrificial tears. They're tears of Jesus thinking about the sacrifice out of love for his friends, that he is about, like we said last week, that he, is, he has already lived the life that they should have lived. That's why he was baptized. That's why he was tempted in the desert. That's why he lived this life of good works and miracles to point that he is what we, you and I should be. Jesus is the way that you should have lived and that I should have lived. He's lived the life we could not live, but now he knows he's about to die the death that you and I deserve to die. He's about to take to himself the punishment of your lust and of my lust. He's about to take to himself at the cross the the condemnation for your greed and my greed. He's about to take to himself those words that even you spoke to your wife or your husband this morning, those words that just, you know the words, just that get in there and stir, stir up shame and stir up insecurity. And Jesus is taking all that and he's about to die the death that you and I deserve to die. And there's tears they're sacrificial tears. One of my favorite scenes in all of, I mentioned last week that I love C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and one of my favorite scenes in the, whole, uh, in the whole story, the whole series, is from The Magician's Nephew. And if you remember the scene where Diggory, Diggory has gone to Aslan, and he's asked Aslan if he could say, Diggory's mom is dying, she's on her deathbed, and he goes and says, Aslan, can you please do something about it? And Aslan comes with Diggory to the deathbed, and here's how the scene goes. I'm just going to read it for us. And Diggory says to Aslan, he says, But please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? And this is what Lewis says. He says, Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws in them. But now in his despair, he looked up at his face, and what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And I love that. The, the tears that Jesus has here, as if he were sorrier about death and about the hard things that you and I have gone through than we are ourselves. I had a, a, a counselor tell me in this past year, I've been doing some counseling for various things, and one of the things that's a big part of my story, and, and I don't think I shared this last week, but um, I kind of alluded to it when I talked about my mom trying to get me into counseling when I was uh, 12 or 13, but part of my story was my dad left our family when I was 12. Um, basically, the long story short is he got addicted to crack cocaine, and it just overtook his life, and he, my, he and my mom split, and he kind of left, and was, was in and out of rehab throughout my life, and as a 12-year-old, I was kind of left with my mom and my younger sister to process what it was like to grow up without a dad and to functionally grow up without a dad, and as I was meeting um, with my counselor, he just said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, Sammy, before you can ever get as completely healthy as you need to get, 
part of what we have to do is we have to go back to 12-year-old Sammy and look him in the eyes and say, Sammy, Dad is not coming home. And when I um, thought about that, the thing that was so powerful to me was it was like Jesus said to me, and Sammy, I want to go there with you and weep. I want to weep with you there. And that's the question for you and for me is where does Jesus want to take you by the hand back to a painful place? Maybe it was even this week. Maybe it was in your childhood. Maybe it was in middle school, which is such a weird and hard time for so many of us. Maybe it was, I don't know when it was. Maybe it was college. Maybe some decision you made, some traumatic event that you had to go through. But where does Jesus want to take you by the hand and take you back there and just weep? And just weep at the brokenness of life and weep that things are not the way they should be. Where does Jesus want to weep with you? But that's not where he leaves us. And this is the last thing I want you to see is is he's come to do something about that. And Lazarus and what he does with Lazarus is actually a picture of what he's come to do. So think with me last about why he wakes. It's interesting, Tim Keller says that most of us go uh, to the grave and, and cry right? Most of us, that's the order. We go to the tomb, we go to the grave, and then we cry, but Jesus does the opposite. Jesus weeps, he cries, and then he goes to the tomb, then he goes to the grave. Why? Because he's about to do something, and he can do something about it. Um, And what's interesting is I want you to know what's happening here is basically what's happening with Lazarus is it's not, I think for my whole life, I read this, and I read all of Jesus's miracles as a way of him saying, what's up? Look at who I am. I'm awesome, right? That's how I've always kind of read this, like no one can do this but me, Look at me, I'm incredible. Now, that's certainly a part of it, his uniqueness, that Jesus alone has the power to do these incredible things. But I want you to see that it's much more than that. That I think what Jesus is actually doing is not simply displaying his power, but Jesus is actually giving them a foretaste of what he's come to do. That Jesus really has come to bring about a new kingdom, a new heavens, and a new earth. And that Jesus really has come to begin in the lines of, of Tolkien to make all the sad things come untrue. And that Lazarus is very much a foretaste of what he's going to do with you and I and what he's going to do with the world and remaking it and renewing it and making it, uh, restoring to what it should be. The way I like to think about it is if you, if you're like me, you love food. And one of the most awkward moments in any kind of nice dinner, I love nice dinner. So when my family goes on vacation, it's interesting. Part of the difficulty of my marriage is my wife, when we go to New York or we go somewhere nice, she's like, I want to see the touristy things. And I'm like, no, I want to eat at the nice places. So we have this tension going on where she likes to do the touristy things, but I want to see the restaurants. But one of the most awkward moments at the restaurants for me is when we order a nice bottle of wine and, and the waiter brings it out and he does that thing where he's like, oh, let me pour a little, you know, pour you a little taste. And I, I'm, I'm at my fakest when I'm sampling wine because I like swirl it and I smell it and then I taste it, but I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> Like, I could never be like, oh, that was terrible. Please send it back to the, you know, uh, I just don't know what I'm doing, but I pretend like I know what I'm doing. But in that moment, that's what's happening. What's the waiter doing? He's actually saying, this is a taste of what the bottle is going to be like, right? This is what the, this, this little taste is what the whole bottle is going to be like. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, what I'm doing with Lazarus is just a little taste of what I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm bringing into the entire world. That's why Romans 8 says, Paul says, that the creation longs for this. It groans that Jesus would begin to do this, and he has. 
And Lazarus is just a little foretaste. And it's interesting, you know, as I was thinking about this image of them unwrapping Jesus and unwrapping, I mean, unwrapping Lazarus, you know, I, we, uh, we have two, two of our daughter's birthdays are coming up. And we're big present people. My, my wife especially, we love to get tons and tons of presents. But in so many ways, this is the present that you and I need. Because it's a present that's also, as the image of them unwrapping Lazarus, this is the present we need because it's a promise of three things. It's a promise that under the one hand, all of your bad things will work for good. That's the promise of the new heavens, of, of Jesus restoring all things. All of your bad things will work for good. That when we get there, we're going to see how Jesus has begun to work all our bad things for good. Number two, all your good things will last forever. That's what I love about heaven. What I love about the new heavens and new earth is this idea that the friendships, the, the, the friendships in Christ that we have are going to be so much better there and they're forever there. Here we have to say goodbye. We have friends move, we move. We have friends die, we die. But there all our good things will last forever. And then thirdly, all your best things are yet to come. Your bad things will work for good. Your good things will last forever. And your best things are yet to come. That's the promise. That's what Lazarus is a little, that's how good the wine is. That's how good the meal is. That's how incredible the Lord's, the the supper of the lamb is going to be. But what does this have to do with us? I want to close with this. What does this have to do with you and me, practically? Knowing that this is how Jesus loves you and me, what, what do we do with it? And I want to tell a story and then I think, have a couple applications, but so uh, part of the joy of being a campus minister is I get to do a lot of weddings, and um, what's funny is my my oldest daughter really loves to dance, and so she is um, when we go to a wedding, she loves to get out on the dance floor. And about a year and a half ago, we we did this wedding where uh, we were the first one of the first uh, kind of families there at the reception, and, and my daughter was one of the first people out on the dance floor, and she was kind of she's almost eight, and she was just kind of dancing and. And uh, by herself, and then these older girls that were like 11 and 12 came out on the dance floor, and like they really knew how to dance, and so they really, they started breaking it down, like I'm not going to show you, um, <laughs> namely because I couldn't, but uh, so they're like really, really dancing, and my daughter, like she begins to crumple on the dance floor and just kind of sitting there pouting, and as we go to leave the reception and go home, we get in the minivan, and uh and our daughter's just, she's just shut down. She's just got angry eyes, and she's kind of got tears in her eyes. And so I say, you know, Jane, Jane Max, my daughter's name, I said, Jane Max, what's wrong? <laughs> and through, like, gritted teeth, she says, those girls. I hate those girls. They're better dancers than me. <laughs> and my heart broke for her. Because I, when she, as she was saying this, I see such a picture of myself. That here's the Lord, and, and here he loves me so well. He loves me so well that we can say, you know, we will sometimes sing, um, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? But we can say here, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would cry with me? That that's how much he loves me. And, and not only does he love me so well, but he's actually invited me to this party, the ultimate party, the party of him beginning to make people new and to make all things new. And yet here I am focused on myself, pouting, self-obsessed, just to the core. And that's you. Instead of Jesus inviting us to, 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 to love others well enough to disappoint them, for my people pleasers, 
you know, sometimes I like to say when, I, when I'm trying to say no, it comes out as yes. A lot of you are that way. Learning, loving people well enough to disappoint them, loving people well enough to weep with them, to not be like Job's counselors and say, oh, I have the answer for what God is doing in your life. Jesus doesn't do that. He says it leads to my glory, but then he weeps, and he just weeps. And to love another person well enough to invite them into the joy of what Jesus has begun to do. But yet, I'm much more like my daughter. I'm much more crumpled on the floor, pouting. And yet, yet Jesus still loves me. And he still invites me. He invites me to be about the work of his kingdom, and you too. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that, um, that this is the kind of love that you have for us. Lord, that you are the one who loves and is making all things new, and yet, Lord, you are the one who weeps, yet causes tears to cease. Lord, I, I pray that, you would, uh, that we would know you as that this morning. Lord, some of us, this is not our view of you, this is not our picture of you, and I pray that you would break apart um, the wrong views that we have of you, and that you would give us uh, the right view of you from your word. But Lord, I also pray for those of us who, who know ourselves to be selfish and self-obsessed, and Lord, I pray that you would Invite us into actual love, to love, to know that the way that you love us is better than any love we'll experience here, but also to know that your love begins to help us to love one another in this way. And I pray for your grace and your mercy to help us in these ways. Pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.